Well, hi, everybody. My name is Melissa Say. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and want to join Janet in welcoming anybody that's new here or not new here, returning, you know, um, just welcome everybody. Um, so tonight we're going to jump into the very beginning of the book, The Doctor's Opinion. And um, I think it's a very important um, part of our literature, of our of our. Um, big book, because it really, it spells out a lot of important information for us. And um, so I'm gonna most likely, probably gonna take me two, two sessions to do it. I'll probably do half tonight and the other half, depending on how we, how we go. So um, I, you know, I wanna, I'm gonna read the first paragraph. I'm going to comment on it and then I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to share my photos. Um, and there's a, and I switched them up for people who've seen my photos before. Stick around. I tried to make them a little more, little, little changes here. Um, so, in the doctor's opinion on XXV, in the first paragraph, it, it says that convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. And so at this point, I'm gonna share my photos with you because this is how I can show the witnessing of the return to health. What does it look like to um, have my health, and I'm gonna start it from the beginning. Um, here we go. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, right, I, this disease, um, really, it had me in its grip from the time I was a little girl, and I've always struggled with how much food I ate, because no matter how much I was given, um, it just never was enough. I could not get satisfaction from normal size. was always... Um, and I was always um, thinking about my next bite. Um, no matter how much I was given, as soon as I ate it, even before I ate it, that's one of my realizations that even as a young kid, my mom would cut this cake. And before the slice was even cut, I knew my piece wasn't gonna be enough because that's how I experienced food. So at the top, my top weight, I was over 300 pounds. And what I want to share in these photos, um, and the purpose for sharing these photos, is because I want you to be able to witness my return to health. And how can you witness my return to health if you don't know what I was like before? And I think I'm very fortunate in that I suffered from morbid obesity. And why do I say that's fortunate? Because I have a very visible, very visible miracle. You can see it, right? You can see it. And that allows me to, to possibly be more helpful, right? I believe that that allows me because what happens when I show my thick photos is people who are perhaps suffering in morbid obesity get, you know, get peaked. Their interest gets peaked. They think, wait a second, if this can happen for her, perhaps it can happen for me. And that's really, that's what I want you to know. That's what I want you to know. So this was me, you know, my daughter's gonna be 22 in May. There she was a newborn. 
And I was over, I was overweight. I was definitely overweight, but I remembered I was so in love with my husband. We're deeply in love and with this new baby. And I thought there is no way that I'm going to eat compulsive. I knew, I knew I had a problem with food and I thought having my dreams come true would cure my problem. And yet here I am in the pink, right? Problem wasn't cured. I got bigger. My daughter got older. We're still happy. My husband's still like, you know, still had a good, good loving marriage. I'm really fortunate. Um, but my disease was, was taking serious hold of me. And, you know, and so when food is your master, like it was for me, the master told me what I like to do. I didn't even know what I liked to. I had no idea what interested me. Um, what interested me was going out to dinner. That's what I wanted to do because I got to eat, right? And I got to um, sit around a table and eat. And so we ate out a lot. We ate out a lot. Um, this is um, in the red shirt. I, was, I often tell this. I was having a party in my house that day. I was, I was actually hosting a party for for my husband, I think it was one of his birthdays. I did not look like I was having a party in, that, in my house. I didn't look like I was having a party. My house didn't look like I was having a party. I, you know, it was it was all I could do to brush my teeth. It was hard. That's how this disease grabs me. It's not just I gain a little bit of weight. I go into the food and my life unravels quickly. Um, and then in the green, I'm on a vacation. And I know that I had lost some weight in between these two pictures. I, you know, by the way, when you're morbidly obese, it takes a while sometimes if you're not on one of those quick schemes like I used to be addicted to. I was addicted not only to, to food, but to diets and schemes. And here I am, I was actually abstinent in this green shirt, but I was probably a, maybe an hour or two, maybe a day away from picking something up. And I know by the end of that trip, I wasn't smiling like this anymore. I did not feel the way I felt in this picture within a short amount of time. This is me and my sisters and my sister-in-laws. Um, what I often say is that um, I showed up to every family event with every resentment and it went back from when I was a baby. Things real or imagined, I held on to all sorts of stories or anything they ever did to me or didn't do for me. I remembered it at every event and every event I spent fake smile on my face, surrounded by people who loved me, but I felt like there was a wall in between us. And I ate a lot and I drank a lot. And oftentimes I was eating in the bathroom while all my family was hanging out together. I would be sitting in the bathroom, shoving food down my throat. Um, and this is a more recent picture. This is not too long ago. And I don't live that way anymore. The glass wall is down. I don't eat, you know, I don't eat outside. In fact, I show up to this event. I think I brought my scale, my food scale. Um, Cause that's just makes it nice and quiet for me at family events. And I wasn't, you know, resentful at anything. This was me when my son, who's gonna be 16 next month was a baby. <clears throat> And I could barely hold him. And I wanted this child more than anything. We had lost a child. Um, I lost many pregnancies between my two children and we lost a child in between my son and my daughter. And this 
baby came after tremendous loss where my heart was just broken and I wanted him desperately. But remember, I, my daughter didn't cure this disease and neither did this son, right? And so as much as I loved him and wanted him, I could barely hold him because the size of my body and I couldn't keep up with him because he was super active and I was miserable. I was beside myself. Um, this is my husband, my son and myself on New Year's. I think that was just about the, I, I think that was about what I had left that could fit me, this sweater. I wore it all the time. It was like one of the last things I could wear. Um, and then fast forward, this was my same baby, a little bit older. Um, at like his middle school, I don't know, some sort of award he got. Um, and you could see the huge transformation. And this is him and I more recently, um, you know, same, same kid. Um, and I like to show those side by side because it really does show. That's what I say about witnessing the return to health. But there you can see, right? This is me and my mom. Um, and again, this is me and my mom. And what I think is very significant about this photo, although I was still overweight and I was still obese, right? I was recovered in this picture in the gray. And if you see my face, my face looks different. I felt like I was a hundred pounds lighter. I, all the resentments, I remembered this day very well. It was my daughter's boss mitzvah. And I was hosting a fabulous party. I did the very best I could. I certainly didn't look like I did in the red. My hair was done. I had, you know, I put myself together as best I could. Um, and, but what I really remember about this event was um, my resentments were gone. The wall that separated me and my family was gone. And I remembered feeling such joy at this event. I was spending a ton of money on food for my, for everybody at this event and alcohol. And I had my same very small plate of what I eat anytime I go out, which is salmon, a vegetable and a salad. And I was happy, happy in my relief. Um, and this is me in, you know, and what I love, what I always share about this is every one of those dresses fits me and I've worn them. I mean, those of you who've been with me not too long ago, I wore this one. I've worn this one. I mean, like I just go in my closet and pull it out. And that is a miracle because even when I was younger and I was always dieting and losing weight, I could never predict that something was going to fit me. And today I never think about, never think about it, right? I go in my closet, I pull it out and I, and I wear it. Um, and that's absolute freedom. And here's a more recent, you know, year or so ago, family picture in one of those dresses that I pulled out and I just wore. Um, and these are two family side-by-side -side photos. This was you know, me, um, this was my daughter and my son, right? Huge change. Um, you know, we're, we're <laughs> I look, I experienced life, nothing like how I did then. Um, and, you know, when I share that food was my master and food told me what I like to do, you notice here, I'm in a restaurant, right? Drinking and eating, because that's what I did. And here I'm not, here I'm at a concert, because now that I'm free, I actually know what I like to do. I've actually had a discovery. God has allowed me to have a physical transformation and a spiritual transformation 
and I enjoy life. I enjoy life. And I, by the way, I showed up at this concert with my weight and measured food in a baggie in my backpack, like, you know, carried it in the venue. Um, food was unimportant. Um, and this is more recent. This is uh, at the LA birthday party and um, where, you know, I got to see some of my fellows, people I love um, and, uh, and danced and had joy and laughed. Um, and um, so that was a really long story about the pictures, but it's the first paragraph. That's the convincing testimony. That's what tells the story. And what I find happens is after I share those pictures and I go through it, people lean in. They lean in. And hopefully not to hear me necessarily, but to hear the message, right? To hear the message that I have to offer. Um, and so let's get back into the doctor's opinion again, right? Let's get out of me, get back into the doctor's opinion. The second paragraph in the doctor's opinion starts a letter and the letter says to whom it may concern. And I'm gonna tell you in my, in my book, I've written right next to it, Dear Melissa, this, I'm who this letter concerns. This letter, I wanna read it like it's written to me, not just to anybody, right? In the third paragraph, it says, a competent businessman of good earning capacity was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. So what do I wanna tell you about that? That we can actually appear quite competent, still be able to make enough money, right? Good earning capacity and be hopeless. And I think that's especially true for, me, for those of us who suffer from, from compulsive overeating because um, I was never arrested for eating compulsively. Uh, no one ever threatened to take my kids away, right? I never wasn't in danger of having my car repossessed or, you know, having a DWI, none of that. Um, I paid my mortgage. My, you know, my kids were reasonably somewhat cared for, not as good as I could have, certainly. Um, and yet I was hopeless, regarded as hopeless. Um, and so if you're waiting, right, for all the things in your life to tank before you can say that you're hopeless, um, I don't know that you have to, right? I don't know that you have to wait. Um, and, and then it further goes on on that page to say, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. So my rehabilitation is this right now. This is what gives me immunity. When I speak to other compulsive overeaters, when I share my story, that's what allows me to be rehabilitated. And I think it's very important that we impress upon others that they must likewise do the same. And so when I have my earliest conversations with anybody, I make it abundantly clear. I am willing to give as much time as required, and I do, 
but you owe, not me, you owe payment to the other compulsive overeaters so that when you get well, you must agree that you will do likewise with still others. Otherwise, it won't work. It won't work for you. You will not remain rehabilitated and there'll be no point in me doing that work with you. It'll be a waste. It'll be a great big waste. Um, I personally, it says, know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. So I often, you know, love to ask people, have you, how many of you have had failure at all the other methods you've tried, right? Like raise your hand if you come here on the, uh, you know, on the heels of failure. Excellent. That, guess what? That's often a requirement. We're people who have to exhaust every other avenue. You know, they call it the last house on the block. And that's what it was for me. Every other method for me had failed. Um, and usually methods for us are diets, right? Diets, weight loss schemes, but I've also tried many other strategies for management, you know, um, and none of them worked, right? Or if they did, they didn't work for long. They were a temporary fix. Like a Band-Aid, they say, like put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. It won't do the trick for long. And that's what my other methods were like. Um, you know, it, it, the, the letter, kind of this part of the letter ends on XXVI, it says, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Well, I don't know. That to me is almost more powerful than my photos. Like if I could show you a picture of my reliability on what I'm saying compared to what it once was, it's like a hundred years apart because my word was not reliable. You know, not because I wanted to deceive you or I was looking to be a liar, but because I needed to control information that other people had about me so that I thought I could feel safe and secure. My word was not reliable. And especially it wasn't reliable about myself, right? And I think what's so incredible about this letter was this letter was written about gutter drunks. It was written, I mean, think about the transformation that this doctor, it's written by Dr. Silkworth, who was, you know, uh, that the, the chief of this particular, of the town's hospital, right? And he was telling other people, let gutter drunks in. And guess what? You can rely on anything they have to say about themselves. Pretty powerful, right? Well, it further now, the next part I'm going to talk about is that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Okay, so my body's abnormal, and so is my mind. I've got two things about me that are really not normal. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. So sometimes people say, well, you know, I eat compulsively because dot, dot, dot. And they point to some aspect of themselves where they're not adjusted to life. 
They've been perhaps, and I don't mean any disrespect for those of you who have had trauma, right? Or have had other things that have caused you to maladjust, to not adjust to life. But that's not necessarily why we're a compulsive overeater. I know I shared, right? I suffered a lot of losses. I suffered some terrible tragedies. That's not why I'm a compulsive overeater, right? So my maladjustment to life or that I was in full fright from reality may be true, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. So those things might be true, but I also have a body that does not metabolize food quite the same as other people. It does something different. We're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So if I leave out the physical component of this disease and I skip over it, I'm not giving you the full information. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinions as to its soundness may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. And so I would, what I would explain to you is this, I am a layman, meaning I'm not an allergy specialist. I do not have evidence of my blood work. You know, like when my, my son at one point went for allergy screening and they did those little pin, you know, they gave him like a little skin test to see what he was allergic to and okay. I don't have those results for this thing, but I can tell you as an ex-problem eater, the only thing that makes sense for me is that my body does something different with food because from the time I was a young kid, I remember that my, I remember going to my grandmother's and my grandmother would, you know, I would sleep over my grandma's and my grandmother would give me um, a, a, hot, a cup of tea and two graham crackers or a cup of tea and two cookies. And my grandmother happily ate the two cookies and the bag went away. I could not eat two cookies quietly. I couldn't. You know, for me, I have two cookies or two whatever, and I eat the sleeve, right? And then I eat the box. And then I'm rummaging through the cabinets for anything right? I have a memory of being in college um, and I lived in a house with a bunch of my girlfriends. And we, I remember one night we walked down to the corner gas station and we each bought a pint of ice cream, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And my friends had maybe, you know, maybe a half of the pint, right? I easily finished my pint, no problem. Okay. Maybe you've done that too, right? Finish the pint. My friends went to bed I could not resist eating theirs. So that in the middle of the night, I finished my housemates' ice creams, their pints of ice creams. And I had to walk in the dark down to the corner store to try to find the flavors that they ate, rummaging, right? Bringing it back and eating it down to the level where I thought they had eaten. And, and it was like, I had no control over that. And 
allergy of the body is the only thing that makes sense in that explanation, right? Because I cared about these people. I didn't really want to be a thief, but that's who I was. And it almost felt like I had no choice. And further says now we work at our solution. So now we're going to talk a little bit about our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane. Okay. This, when people say the spiritual part of the program, there is no spiritual part of the program. This is a spiritual program. We are going to work out the solution on the spiritual, right? Spiritual, that's our solution. A relationship with God, a relationship with our creator. That's how we're gonna work this out. As well as on an altruistic plane, again, we are going to have to help others. That becomes our solution. It's not at the end, now you're gonna start being nice to other people. Actually, we work it out. Day one, start thinking about other people. Start living an altruistic life. We favor, now it talks, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it's imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. All right, I wanna talk a little bit about the hospitalization and then I wanna talk about being cleared. Um, many of us do not go into treatment facilities. I did not, I never. So sometimes we hear people say, wait, because we tend to use this term a lot of us here, we talk about the hospitalization period of recovery. Um, and that's a phrase that we kind of have like used, but I wanna be clear. It does not necessarily require you going into a treatment facility. What does it look like to be in this hospitalization period? We can create our own hospitalization periods, right? With tight parameters around us and the food with very clear directions. I think about it like this. If I were in the hospital, I would be getting a lot of care from other people. I would not be stuck in a room told, okay, go get well, and then I'll talk to you later. Mm -mm. It would be a lot of support, a lot of direction. And what I say for myself and people that I tend to help is no outside distractions to get you away from your goal, which is to get well right? So it's not the time generally to start taking a new dance class if you're starting this process, right? It's not necessarily a time to plan a trip tomorrow with your girlfriends, you know, who are not in program because vacations are hard for people in program, you know, who are new in recovery. They're hard. Um, you know, when you're in this hospitalization period, what I usually suggest to people is don't eat out. That's like a a drunk going to a bar, that's kind of, that's kind of, um, you know, not really wise um, to try to limit as much of your, you know, of your life to getting well as if you were in the hospital. And what it looks like, you know, for a sponsor is spending a lot of time helping a person. You know, I've, I've had sponsees who they FaceTimed me while they were doing their food shopping because they were nervous to go in the supermarket alone. That's what the hospitalization period looks like, right? Now, when it talks about 
a man's brain being cleared before he's approached? Well, I understand, you know, alcoholics, if you're, if you're drunk, if you're falling down drunk, no, you can't necessarily start talking about the steps. You're drunk. However, you know, news alert, Abby actually did talk to Bill and Bill was drinking. So that's not necessarily true either. What I would say is if I'm doing, if I'm going to start to talk to somebody about the 12 steps, I'm not doing it while they're hanging out at the ice cream parlor, eating an ice cream cone, crying to me how they can't stop eating ice cream. It's not really the time, right? To be, it's like, okay, let's, let's, can we put the ice cream cone down for a second and start, and start talking about the work together. Now, I know there are some people who have different set of directions. I have no disrespect for, for them. That's, you know, some people require a certain amount of time abstinent. Um, I think it's your interpretation of this, but I do understand that when someone's in the hospital, they're not left alone. And that's my understanding that we help people. Um, XXVI, I, no, XX, I can't even read anymore. XXV, yes, I, I, it says some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Whoa, <laughs> I'm gonna break that down. Okay, we are going, it says some form of moral psychology. So we're gonna have to come to a spot where we have a new way of viewing the world, a new way of thinking about life, a new way, you know, a new design for living is what it is this moral psychology, right? Moral being truth, moral being a set of morals, of principles, right? And it's gonna be urgently important. We cannot live our same self-centered, right? Self-gratifying lives and expect to get well. There's gonna to have to be a huge change. And yet here's the problem, applying what we need to do is gonna be really difficult for us because we can't do it with our synthetic knowledge. We can't do it with our own man-made power. So we're actually told here, we're gonna need a new set of morals, but we're not really gonna be able to follow those morals without God's help, right? If it's not synthetic knowledge, if it's not man-made knowledge, it's gonna be something beyond, beyond us beyond our scientific approach. On XXVII, it says, the unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So um, what, what really sold the outside world and this doctor in particular was 
the unselfishness of the people who were helping one another. You know, the work that we do here together, there's no profit. I'm not making any, there's no, nobody's paying. By the way, we all join this workshop, not a single dime is collected, nothing, right? Um, sponsors don't charge sponsees. Sponsors don't say to sponsees, well, you know, I spent four hours with you last week and, um, you know, you owe me this, right? Nothing. There's no profit motive here. Um, and why do we do this? Why would we work together? Why would we work hard with one another? Long and wearily, because actually we're being told if it's not long and wearily, if it's not hard, right? If it's not hard, you might not be doing it enough. If it doesn't pinch just a little bit, you might need to press yourself a little bit more. Why? Why is it that we do this? Well, I'll tell you why I do it. I, I believe in myself. I do. I believe in myself. But even more, even more than I believe in me, I'm just a human. I believe in far more in the power that pulled me back from the gates of death. And, you know, um, my experience was that I had dangerously high blood pressure. Those pictures that I showed you, that was a woman who had very high blood pressure um, and I needed surgery. I needed to get a hysterectomy and the doctors would not touch me until I got my blood pressure down a little bit. Um, and I was in a spot where I, in a resting state, I could hear my heart pounding in my ears. I feel like I was maybe months away from, from having a stroke. I really feel like that, if, I, if that. Um, and I, I would say, you know, it was like the gates of death for me. I would lay in bed at night. I could hear my heart pounding in my ears. I had horrible reflux. I snored myself awake most nights. I had terrible sleep apnea. And I would lay in bed and cry because I was certain that my kids were gonna find me dead in the morning. That was my fear that I was gonna drop dead in the middle of the night and my husband would find me dead next to him and my kids would find a dead mother. And that's what it was like to be at the gates of death. And the reason I do this work is I don't live like that anymore. I don't have that experience of life anymore. Um, you know, and so that's why we labor long and wearily in this field. <clears throat> And I'm not unique. That's the thing, right? That I am just one of many. I've met countless men and women who've had similar stories to me. And the reason we do this work is because it works, because it works and we believe in it. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So again, the hospitalization concept is going to be brought up again. And again, we're going to need a lot of support to get clean, right? To, to keep from the food. On XXVII, I, I, it says the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class 
and never occurs in the average temperature drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So I'm just gonna take a sip. This craving that I get is limited to this class. What class? Those of us that are the real compulsive overeater. Those of us that are the, the real thing, right? Not just the hard eater, not just the moderate eater, but ones, and it'll further say further on, ones who cannot recover without a spiritual basis, that kind. So I've got this craving that happens and it's different from other people. You hear people all the time saying, like my, my, my husband will say it, or, you know, oh my God, I have a, such a craving for that. I have a craving for this. And they have a craving before they eat it. And they eat it and the craving gets removed, right? I have the opposite. I have a mental obsession that when I eat it, then I begin to crave it. That is not the experience of normal people, which is why I've gone out to dinner with friends and they share a piece of cake and they leave pieces of it over and they don't care, right? They take a couple of bites and with each bite they take, the desire for more gets diminished, right? Every bite they take, they want it less and less and less. And I have the exact opposite experience with food. Every bite I've taken of certain foods, eating off my plan, of eating outside of what I'm supposed to eat, I want more. I cannot, it cannot be quenched. It's in, it's like, it's unable to be satisfied and it doesn't happen for other people. And what happens is when I'm living that way, my problems pile up so damn quick. It's like a ski jump. I start eating and everything falls apart underneath me. Suddenly I'm questioning the happiness of my marriage. I mean, that's what happens for me. I start eating and I start feeling unloved. I start eating and I, you know, it's like everything unravels quickly. Um, I want to make sure that we leave time. I'm going to just, I'm going to read this next part, talk about it, and then we're going to stop. Frothy emotional appeal. It's on XXVIII. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. So we're going to find out what doesn't work for us. Appealing to us from, from emotions. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So frothy emotional appeal. That means somebody sitting you down, crying to you, saying, look at how much weight you're gaining, or look what you're doing to yourself, or 
you know, don't, don't you, you know, you've got a beautiful face or any of those other things appealing to people from that emotional spot doesn't work. And my own, you know, story about this where somebody really, by the way, growing up, my parents every now and then would sit me down, offer to help me, give me a good talking to, you know, they were going to pay to help me. They were going to pay for this program. Um, and it didn't work, not for long. But at the end for me, you know, one of the last things that happened um, was my mother-in-law sat me down at my kitchen table. My babies were little. My mother-in-law started crying. She's a very stoic woman. And she started crying about how she lost her mother as a little girl and it was a horrible thing to grow up without a mother. And then she saw the same thing happen to her sons, which my husband lost his father. He was seven or eight years old. And my mother-in-law said, it's, it's a horrible thing for a child to grow up without a parent. It's so painful. Life is more difficult. Happy occasions are not quite as happy. And Melissa, I'm looking at you and you're gonna do this to my grandchildren. And she was crying. My response was not putting the food down, didn't work. In fact, I got angry at her. I was so mad at her. And as soon as she left, I ate. Fluffy emotional appeal doesn't work for us. Someone sitting me down telling me I'm killing myself doesn't work. What does then? Somebody else sitting across from you saying, I was killing myself. I was killing myself. That's the message that has depth and weight, right? That's the difference. That's the conversation that Ebby had with Bill. He sat at his table and he didn't say, Bill, look at you. You're destroying your life. You're falling apart. No, he showed up the message. He showed up the message and he told Bill what God had done for him. That's the message that has depth and weight when we tell people what God has done for us. Um, I'm going to stop at this point, And next time I'm going to pick up midway into that paragraph because there's even more in that paragraph I want to get to.